you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, all of our lovely listeners. Hello, listeners. Welcome back for episode 22 to the Common Descent Podcast. Yeah. Our, what a number. I, I love double-digit numbers where the numbers are the same. It's, it's, there's something wonderfully poetic about it. Right? Is, today's episode's a, a fun subject. It's, it's micro-paleontology. Ooh. Yeah, which is uh, going to be an interesting one because it's not a hard concept because it's paleontology, but it's got a very interesting focus. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be covering it a little differently than we typically do when we do fields of study. Yeah. The other cool thing about today's episode is that it is a suggestion from one of our listeners. Yeah. And not just a listener, it was one of my friends, Amber. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, she sent this suggestion in early on when we started the podcast. She texted me and said we should do micropaleontology. Yeah, actually, I think this might have been the first one on the list. Yeah. And Maybe. So it was way we're up finally there. getting to it, and it's it's a fun, it's going to be a fun one. So, yes. Amber, thanks for listening. Thanks for the suggestion, and here you go. Thanks, Amber. But, as usual, before we jump into that, we must jump into the news. Into the news. The first bit of news uh-huh. that I have for today, I'm going to try to go through this a little quick, because I have a lot to say about the second news. <laughs> yes. This is a study about when... Mammals made the shift to being active in the daytime. Yeah. This is a study by Roy Maurer, I hope, in <laughs> et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Mm-hmm. Mammals are weird because all across the mammalian family tree, there are these widespread adaptations for nocturnal living. Yes. Right? Being active in the nighttime, even in diurnal species. Mm-hmm. All mammals have these adaptations, like things like vision that are typically seen in nocturnal species. And the long-running hypothesis to explain this is that mammals are ancestrally nocturnal. Mm -hmm. And indeed that being nocturnal might be one of the ways that they carved a niche out for themselves during the Mesozoic when ecosystems were dominated by reptiles. Yes, which may have been more diurnal, which is common in reptiles and birds. There's a lot of diurnality living in the daytime. So this is a study that did ancestral state reconstruction. So basically they throw a whole bunch of different animals into a phylogenetic tree analysis, Mm -hmm. and based on the features of the living animals, try to estimate when different features were present in their evolutionary past. Yes, This study threw almost 2,500 species of living mammals, which is almost half of all living mammals, (laughs) maybe a little more even, from all over the mammalian family tree, based on their modern-day behavior, trying to determine when did certain behaviors and habits show up. What they found is that it, it appears that nocturnal behavior is ancestral and was dominant throughout the Mesozoic. Mm -hmm. 
and that the radiation of diurnality or cathemerality, which is living, you know, daytime, nighttime, sort of interchangeably, yes, occurred around the end of the Cretaceous period. Oh, what what changed? Yeah, <laughs> what changed? Go back to episode five <laughs> and learn all about what changed at the end of the Cretaceous period. So this is evidence, inferred evidence for the fact that through the Mesozoic, mammals were largely nocturnal, and then the loss of the dominant ecosystem species on mm-hmm. land at the end of the Cretaceous, most of the dinosaurs, lots of the other you know, pterosaurs and things like that, opened up new niche space that allowed mammals to radiate into diurnal forms. Yeah. Which is really an exciting piece of mammalian evolution to, to uncover the history of. Absolutely. I was, I was going to call it an underdog story, but it technically would not yet be an underdog story. No, not uh, for not for quite a while. Yeah, not for a while. But no dogs. Yet. It is really cool that they literally were underfoot, you know, hiding, you know, at being active, opposite hours of the, mm-hmm. you know, dominant animals, and then once those opportunities opened up, it was not long before they stepped into them, which is very. It's it's very cool. You know they. Animals do not wait long to take uh, advantage of an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, so these days we've got all sorts of daytime living. Mm-hmm. These days mammals do both. Yeah, yes. Lots of daytime, lots of nighttime, carving out niches all over the day. Yeah, it's it's very around the clock, and it's it's interesting because there really is a comparable number for each time. Like, we think about everything's awake during yeah. the day, and a lot of the big animals are, but, you know, even some weird animals like hippos come out at night. Yeah. Because they can graze without mostly. worrying about the sun and all. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. Which is actually, that quote's very fitting for hippos. Sure is. <laughs> Someday I'll tell the story of the uh, feral hippos. The terrifying yes. story of feral hippos. That's a story <laughs> for another time. Indeed. So, speaking of dinosaurs, before they went extinct, mm. my first news story is about a fairly recent discovery happened just at the end of last month and this is a dinosaur that was discovered in France and the article is in uh scientific reports by Pascal I think it's Godefroit sure it, it it's Godefroy? definitely not a name I'm used to coming across but <laughs> it's at all and <laughs> they discovered a new dinosaur in France that has very interesting teeth. Yeah. So this dinosaur is a, a species from a group called the Rhabdodontids, which are basal cousins of the Iguanodons. Mm-hmm. So similar, you know, big back legs could be on all fours, but bipedal as well. Big chewing teeth. Yeah. You know, is what they're known for. This one, though, took that to a whole nother level. <laughs> so we'll see if I can get this name... You know, and then we'll just refer to it as the dinosaur. But it's <laughs> <laughs> it's Metheronodon, Metheronodon mm-hmm. provincialis. Sounds good to me. It's good enough. And this was around. <laughs> it was in the Cretaceous, about eighty-four to seventy-two million years ago. That this one, this specimen was dated to. This one had extremely large blade-like teeth, very flat. They even were pointed at the top. And hmm. to give you an idea, the skull was not big. It was it from the from the art the uh, publication. It looked like its skull was 
maybe just roughly dog sized. Yeah. So not a huge skull, but some of the teeth, and it's in centimeters, but it just grab a ruler next time you get a chance to take. <laughs> some of these teeth were six centimeters long, and others were five centimeters wide. Wow. Big flat plates. Wow. Like an arrowhead. Not, yes, like an arrowhead, very much like that. And the cool thing about this group is they all share a feature, and this one took it to the extreme, but they have enamel on one side of that surface, but not the other. Hmm. And this is very common in lots of herbivores where they have uneven enamel coverage because that causes uneven wear, which causes good chewing surfaces. Okay. You know, horse teeth do this, where they wear down to have rough surfaces. The tooth here sharpened into a blade yeah. by wearing. <laughs> the top tooth had enamel on the outside, the lower tooth had it on the opposite, so they would sharpen each other into shears. Cool. And were most likely made for taking on, or at least the article said, uh, woody foods, you know, yeah, clipping yeah. stuff. And this was just a really extreme version of that, that tooth shape, which is, uh, it's, it's, I like looking at the pictures. This one's just one of those really nice specimens that's cool to look at. Yeah, that, it's, it's an interesting group, right? We talked about last time, the ornithopods, mm-hmm. the dinosaurs that really took chewing and, and tooth utilization to a new level, uh, more mm-hmm. so in the more derived ones. But it's always fun when you get a dinosaur that you can go into so much depth with the teeth. Mm-hmm. Right, Classically, mammals are the toothy. Tons of mammal yeah. species are identified just on the teeth, because teeth exactly. are so iconic. But there are some dinosaurs who did really interesting specialized things with their teeth and it allows you to to go into a whole lot of detail with them absolutely it's 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 neat stuff and it's cool when you get these these groups that have just these big trends with their teeth and are doing something i mean there there are mammals with self-sharpening teeth today but uh mm-hmm. these weird arrowhead teeth were just very alien compared to what we see nowadays and it's neat yeah cool new dinosaurs coming yeah. all the time absolutely the more the better I agree. Bring them on. <laughs> hey, speaking of cool new dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. So my next bit of news is not a full new study. It is a reply to another study that I wanted to talk about because I think it is a brilliant demonstration of how science works. Absolutely. This is this is how debate in science works. So back in March of this year, there was a paper that came out that rearranged the dinosaur family tree. Mm -hmm. We did our very first digression was about this. As a refresher, this was a study by Barron et al., where they, so, you know, classically we split dinosaurs into the Ornithischia and the Saurischia. This, for decades, has been how we've understood dinosaur evolutionary relationships, that they split into these two groups. But, early dinosaur evolution is mysterious and confusing. The paper by Barron et al. did a huge phylogenetic analysis, right? The way those work is you take tons of species and you code all the as many features as you can. You throw it into a computer program and say, computer, based on all these features and all these species, what is the most likely relationship between these organisms? And they found support for a different arrangement, which they called the Ornithoskeleta 
arrangement, which grouped theropods and ornithischians under ornithoskeleta and then sauropods off to the side. And there was all the headlines about rewriting the textbooks and this and that. Recently, a reply was levied uh, mm-hmm. that is in Nature's Brief Communications, and this is by Max Langer et al., in their response, this is a direct response to that paper. It's not like a whole other study of their own. It's a direct response. They said that they think, first of all, that Baron et al.'s study is great because of how much work they put into, like mm-hmm. all the, the the scope of their analysis is really good. But they disagreed with some of their methods and retested it. Yes, they said that. For one thing, they think that they left out some species that were very important for learning about early dinosaur evolution, and they disagreed with some of the ways that they scored the features, like the mm-hmm. way that they digitally described some of the features. So what they did was a quality control retest. They f- threw in a, a couple extra dinosaurs, and they went through and adjusted the scores for the features that they disagreed with. Mm-hmm. And they made the point that the authors of the original paper hadn't had the chance to personally study a lot of the dinosaurs they scored. Yes. Whereas this paper is composed, that the authors of this response are all the people that worked on almost all of those dinosaurs. <laughs> so they redid it, they made a bunch of their own adjustments, and reran the analysis and found better support for the traditional arrangement, yes. Ornithischia sericia, but not great support, still very weak, slightly less support for the Ornithoskeleta hypothesis, and then only slightly less support for a completely different arrangement called Phytodinosauria, which actually puts the sauropods and ornithischians in one group, and theropods off to the side. Interesting. It's like musical chairs. Yup. And their conclusions were that, number one, they don't find strong support for the Onithoskeleta hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Number two, that they don't find very strong support for any of these hypotheses, which means that we have a lot left to learn. Mm -hmm. So mainly they're saying the Onithoskeleta hypothesis was interesting but we don't find any reason to abandon the one that's worked for decades mm-hmm. because we're not finding strong support for that alternative. But we do think there's a lot more left to learn. Like We have to refine our understanding a lot. Yes, that's awesome. Yeah. That's really good. That, and I, I like your point at the beginning. That really is a perfect example of how the true scientific process works is you know when you hear about scientific debate you know you picture you know old men with beards yelling <laughs> at each other across very long tables yeah which is not what it i mean i'm sure that happens some places but it it may very well yeah. as be over <laughs> you know something they said <laughs> versus some scientific <laughs> thing you know we don't have scientific rivalries the same way we used to mm-hmm. you know at least in paleontology. Uh, I can't speak to the other yes. fields. But this is, this is how it happens, is where I do research and I put forward my conclusion in my study, and then David looks at it and goes, interesting, 
I don't like these three points, or these three points feel mm-hmm. not quite you know, accurate or fully you know discerned. You know that it's, there's something off about them. So I'm going to do everything you just did step for step, but I'm going to tweak these the way I think they should be. Yes, and look at the results. You know, were those three tweaks enough to completely undo, or was it something different? And this one had a little bit of everything where it was, it brought it back to the original, or it, it had the original answer that we were used to, but with not as much support as you might suspect. Mm-hmm. The Ornithoskeleta, you know, option was not a badly supported option comparatively, just less so. And then there was yeah. a third one that no one had <laughs> thought about, really. <laughs> At least not recently. It, yes, it was like exactly. an old one that people had That's thought a, of and then, for, then like, stopped talking about. <laughs> yes, and so it's it's one of those where it's it's very interesting of they don't you don't do these kind of studies to disprove what Barron said. You know, that's mm-hmm. not it's not the goal. It's to say, all right, I like what you said. It's a big statement. Yeah. And we we have reservations about a couple of things a couple of decisions you made or a couple of you know, conclusions you drew. So we're going to just redo it with a fresh pair of eyes. Yes. And see what comes out of it. They could have done it, and it could have been like, yep, Ornithoskeleta's good. You know, yeah. Everything panned out. We looked at it with even more scrutiny with the people who actually originally described these specimens, and mm-hmm. it could have gone either way. They weren't banking on it, and they make that very clear in the article, which I like. Yes. Uh, and that's that's really cool. And the best part, I think, the most the be- the best demonstration of this as a debate... And you will not see this in the link we're going to put in the blog, because the link in the blog post is going to be the press release, mm-hmm. uh, whereas I was reading the original actual paper, which I mm-hmm. don't believe we can link to in the in the blog post. Directly after this is a reply from the original authors. Mm-hmm. So this is a published response, and then the original authors had the chance to read this and tell what they thought. Yeah. And that little reply from Baron et al. says, first of all, and I like this, this is actually really cool. They start by saying, and this is, again, reframing how you imagine how scientific debates go. Langer et al. provide the first re-examination of our new hypothesis on early dinosaur relationships, and we welcome their critical appraisal. Yes. We're not fighting. <laughs> like, yeah. they're, that being said, they say, basically, you know, they say uh, they, there's a handful of things that they that they respond with but one of them is that they disagree with some of the changes they made mm-hmm. in the rescorings and they think that that might change how the the outcome looks they agreed essentially that we've got weak support for lots of stuff mm-hmm. so we have to go and do more of these and like, there's a lot of confusion around the early evolution of the dinosaurs and so that back up they're saying okay you changed a bunch of stuff your results are interesting. Here's what we disagree with in your methods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and thus, scientific investigation continues. It's it's how a, a it's how the middle ground is found, not due to compromise, but due to if we're disagreeing and we're both doing good science, that means the truth probably lies somewhere between us. Could be. You know, is that whether it may, it may be closer to one end or the other, but we have to figure out where it is. Is it 
on your end or my end, and only by going back and forth and saying, you know, it's like deciding on, okay, what well, which blue is true blue? <laughs> you know, you can yeah. debate with people for a long time of going, all right, I we can all agree these blues don't count, but <laughs> out of these, which one, you know, it's the same, you have to decide, all right, but is this feature more important than this feature, or this, you know, all those little things, and that's what the discussions bring yep. you to, and it's really cool. And this is why when we did our But We Digress about Ornithoskeleta, we said this is not settled. Yes. One paper does not decide it, and so there will be lots more Ornithoskeleta discussion to come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, my next uh, news article, our final news, is not nearly as earth-shaking in the fact that it's rewriting anything, but the animals were big, and so they might have shook in the earth when they walked around. hey uh, Yeah, oh, I'm Segway Master over here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's our will. <laughs> My next article is about woolly mammoths, and specifically a study that was done recently that was actually a very interesting way to or it drew a very interesting conclusion about woolly mammoth social behavior by studying the bones and specifically genomics. Hmm. Which is not typically a connection that you see, but it was very cool. So basically, they did a study on a 98 woolly mammoth specimens, and including pieces of bone, tooth, and tusk, to look at the genome of those mammoths. Mm-hmm. to determine the sex. In doing so, they found a very high percentage of males compared to females. To be precise, 69% were males and 31% were female. Interesting. Yeah, so it was not... And as with most animals, ratio by birth should be roughly 50-50. Mm-hmm. So this, they say, does not necessarily suggest that there were more males roaming around but more males were getting fossilized. Yes. Which typically is a result of mammoths dying in very particular ways. Often natural traps are a big mm-hmm. source for mammoth fossils. You know, caves, yeah. bogs, falling into crevasses. Yeah, tar pits. All of that stuff. Yes, all of mm-hmm. those things. And so for the, the what the researchers suggest with this is that it meant males were more likely to fall into these traps. And by the way, the study is in Current Biology, and it's Patricia Pecknerova. The the C has the little thing over it. I think it's... Yeah, it does. I think it's Pesnerova. Pesnerova? I, I didn't know that's what the little thing did for a C. Maybe. I might be making that up. That, that works. We, we now have both options. <laughs> uh, <laughs> once again, et al. Yes. And the researchers not only say that this means, or suggest that males were more apt to fall into these natural traps, but this actually might speak to mammoth social behavior. So modern pachyderms mm-hmm. are matriarchal matriarchal uh, they <laughs> they are led by a matriarch, you know, female led. Mm-hmm. They are divided by the sexes. Females live in the herds led by old, you know, a female elephant with mothers, grandmothers, and daughters all, multiple generations all living together Mm -hmm. and going through. 
the big reason that this is important is that having a old experienced leader means you know where watering holes are, you know where to go for food, you know where what places to avoid. Mm-hmm. Males don't typically have these big hurts. They make bachelor groups or go solo. You may get a old male leaning younger males in a bachelor mm-hmm. uh, herd, but if a big male or younger male or an experienced male is on its own because they get kicked out of the herd once they hit a certain age, yeah, you know, from the females group, they don't have that same leadership. And if they're more likely, if they're the ones that are falling into these traps more often, it may be because they were going it alone and having to figure it out for themselves. Interesting. That is, that is a super interesting result. It, it makes me actually, what it makes me really want to know, and I don't know mm-hmm. if this was in the study, is if there have been studies on the differential mortality in living elephants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do roaming males tend to die more or or die in certain ways more mm-hmm. compared to females because of that separation in their Absolutely. in their elephant societies. Yeah. It's it's it was cool stuff where before this we had always uh, partially assumed and inferred that mammoths held very similar social structures to modern day pachyderm, pachyderms because we've we, you know we've found them together mm-hmm. before and you know they've been in cave drawings of them together i mean so it's we had evidences but we had this is one of the first times where it's or one of the few times where it's been a quantitative result suggesting that there was that same sort of behavior which is very cool that's super cool yeah it's interesting because differential fossilization is something that comes up uh i i I always think of it in terms of feeding habits because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's something that happens in the Librea tar pits, which are predator yes. traps. Absolutely. Prey gets stuck, predator gets attracted by the prey, and so there's lots more carnivores in the Librea tar pits than there are herbivores, which is unusual. I've not ever thought about sex traps. Like yes. It's trapping a certain sex of a species more than the other because of different social behaviors, which is yep. a really fascinating result. It's it's very interesting because and it's one of those things where this is another one of those aspects of paleontology where the um, preservation bias can be so tricky because looking at a fossil record for an area or a species or time period, there's lots of times where you can look at all right T Rex was probably rare in the ecosystem they're rare in the fossil record mm-hmm. and they're a big predator so they probably have big territories and da 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 right but then there are these times where you can't look at it at face value and you otherwise you would assume that man california was just chock a block with predators <laughs> like it was like 90 percent predator over here you could not walk without tripping over a saber-toothed cat you know yeah. like you can't take it at face value all the time so there's there's times where it, it'll it'll almost stump you because there might be something unforeseen affecting the numbers yes very cool indeed well, that, I do believe, wraps up today's news, folks. And that's the news. Indeed. On to the main event. We now... Something, something, something. Your feature presentation. Yes. Uh, very small feature presentations, because we are talking about micropaleontology. Hooray! Things that yeah. fit uh, between the spaces of the atoms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, this... ignore that sentence, everybody out yes. there who didn't yes. 
if you didn't catch it, that was an Ant-Man reference, and you yes. thought that I was making a scientific statement, please ignore it, because <laughs> that is the kind of scientific statement that is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it. you have to do what you have to do to save your daughter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you have to do what you have to do to excuse a man shrinking down to the size of an ant. <laughs> Physicus has got to get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> All we have to do is jump over that science obstacle and and go right ahead with our plot. That's that's the picture I need is some guy punching science out of the way as he goes to save his family. <laughs> Get out of my way, logic. Oh, I love it. So, micropaleontology is a field of paleontology that, as the name suggests, and you might have already guessed, studies very, very small things. Tiny things. Micro things. Microfossils. And microfossils are have a very similar simple definition that's not nearly as, as as technical as you typically get used to scientific definitions being. These are things that require a microscope to study. Yes. <laughs> if you can study it with the naked eye or very low magnification, it's a macrofossil. Mm-hmm. So even things like shrew teeth, which are crazy small. Yeah. Macrofossil. If it's Needing actual microscopes, it is a microfossil. Yes. Uh, now, these do still have a rough size range. We're typically looking at a couple millimeters, like literally two. Mm-hmm. And I think the smallest ones, most things <laughs> noted them being 0.001 millimeters. <laughs> yes, super <laughs> tiny bits of life. And to just frame this again, once again, in centimeters, so once again, pick out that ruler. We're saying that these things are smaller than two-tenths of a centimeter. So, yes, legitimately micro things. Yeah, this is one of those cases where the terminology is a bit loose. Mm-hmm. Because when we were at the gray site, we would talk about the microvertebrates. Yes. And a lot of what we called microvertebrates would not fit the definition that we're using right now of strict micropaleontology. Absolutely where we were saying, like, snakes, the snake bones were microverts because they're small vertebrates compared to the rhinos and tapirs. Yes. Yes. Whereas in this case, if you're talking to somebody who studies what we're about to talk about, right, really Mm -hmm. micro stuff, where you actually need a microscope not just to examine it, but to see it in the first place. Exactly. They would think that my snake vertebrae are enormous Mm -hmm. (laughs) macro fossils. Absolutely. And that's that's the big difference is like we used microscopes, dissecting microscopes when we were picking out those microvertebrate fossils, but mm-hmm. I could still see it once I moved it out from under there. Yes. It was just a lot easier to see it on a microscope. This one requires that microscope, sometimes even down to electron microscopes. So, I mean, it can get pretty extreme. Yep. So this field is not like a specific field of study where it is focusing on one aspect it's focusing on a group being being that smaller fossils made up of many many different kinds of fossils Mm -hmm. in fact there's a whole society for studying these tiny things yes the micropaleontological society shout out to the micropaleontological society yeah and they are pretty cool so they've they're uk based been around since about 1970 and uh, their whole goal is just to promote the study of and education 
of micropaleontology, mm -hmm. non-for-profit. They have the Journal of Micropaleontology, do lots of cool publications. Yeah. So they're like, we talked in episode 17 about the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Absolutely. Which runs the meeting and runs the mm -hmm. journal. This is the same thing. It's just micropaleo. Exactly. And they uh, separate into six specialist groups, uh, which we'll be focusing on when we talk later in the episode about the variety of fossils that can be found and are typically studied in this uh, category of science. And these groups are the mm. foraminifera, microvertebrates, calciferous nanofossils, mm -hmm. ostracods, silicofossils, and paleontology. Yes. And we'll go into what each of those are in a little bit. But first, I wanted to actually talk about how you go about finding microscopic fossils. Yeah. So the, the things that, for those, that, that was a lot of alien words. Yes. Uh, these are things for for some specifics, and like like you said, we'll go into it more. Yeah, later, we'll go into like, it. They're, they're weird. They're, these are weird groups. Yeah, these include things like plankton. Yes. Right. Nanoplankton, algae, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes really small teeth and scales from really tiny vertebrates, super tiny crustaceans. You mm -hmm. know, the kind creatures that themselves are microscopic. Not just, you know, yeah. a tooth that's tiny from an otherwise larger creature, but, you know, sometimes these these are, are a lot of times single-celled organisms can be found remains of as microfossils like these. Lots of protists in, in this field of study. Yes, and if you get super crazy, you can even find things like cyanobacteria. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of cool things that can be found. And the interesting thing is that some of these can be just loose in sediment. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of these will actually make up a lot of the, the sediment that, like, if you were to take a beach under a microscope, you know, just mm -hmm. beach sand, you would find many of these sorts of creatures. Because the other weird thing about this, this field is a lot of these, like, a lot of them are still around today. Oh yeah, and they've been around for a long time. So it's a very interesting field for the fact that it spans most of the fossil record, which is cool. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. These things can be found either you know loose in sediment, but they also mm -hmm. can be found locked away in rock and you know other other uh, forms like that. And getting them for study does require you know steps usually. Uh, I actually found one yes. really nice article going through specific steps on how they procure it. And one of the big ones, very much like we did at our fossil site, is screening. You're going to have yeah. to really, really wash away as much material as you can without washing away the very small fossils so that you can actually go looking for them. Because somehow you're going to have to get them, get them loose and either washing away the sediment or just washing the the sand or the, whatever it is that you you know the loose material yeah. is a a big first step i remember at at the gray site and we you know episode 14 we had Sean talk about yes. a lot of the procedure of, of how we no 13 episode 13 we had Sean talk about a lot of the procedure we used and then we talked a little bit more in episode 14 mm -hmm. i'm remembering my numbers <laughs> but we screened right we used mm -hmm. screens to sift through the sediment to get 
my snake vertebrae and, yes. and all the little teeth and stuff, Josh's shrew teeth. But when there was a the, the group that came in to study pollen, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, what they did was they used a series of ever smaller screens. Exactly, yes. Because the screens we used to get our microvertebrates would completely lose pollen. Oh, yeah. It's we were washing all that away. And so that is one of the big things is they have to use multiple steps of sieving where they'll be, you know, a lot of times be stacked to where they will sieve the bigger stuff, smaller stuff. And then, I mean, it gets down to, you know, filter paper sizes. So, I mean, it, it is getting very, very small materials. Oh, and yeah. the interesting thing is that then when you wash it, you have to be very careful by handling it because now you're effectively have a whole bunch of sand, which some of it is made up of fossils. And yes. if you pour off the water, you have to be very careful. None of it pours away because some of them might float. Some of yeah. them could very easily get washed off. You know, they talked about having to let things dry in a, f- a fume hood, you know, even when there was standing water because you needed it all to evaporate so that nothing got accidentally washed away. Mm-hmm. You have to be very careful. You know, there's lots of uh, um, precautions. There's lots of precautions for making sure that you don't have trouble while studying and procuring these fossils. Uh, words are hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're easy to lose. These absolutely. Fossils. T- like tiny, tiny, tiny. How do you how do you care for things that you can't see without mm-hmm. special equipment? And so one of the big things is washing them. They they'll you know the article I read said talking about they even do a second wash after screening it to get rid of any dust and things like that so that yeah. you can accurately see the fossil that you're looking for and it's not obscured by dust molecules because wow. that's a thing you have to worry about at microscopic scale. I'm remembering what Shaley told us in episode 13. She was explaining how Shaley and, and Davis. Both were explaining how when you're working with things at the super small level, mm-hmm. the physics of your equipment changes. Yes, it does. And how the, the the glue you're using, and if you're using water, it ha- you have to consider the fact that chemicals don't act the same way once you get when you get down to certain smaller scales. Yeah, it's just like gravity doesn't scale when you do. Mm-hmm. You know, scale model. That's why you can tell that something's a scale model in a movie because the water moves different and yeah, everything is the physics are off. You can't quite put your finger on it, but you know it's wrong. Weird. This one has that, and this is one of my favorite parts of the procedure that they described: is when you're picking, when you're going through and removing those fossils from the sediment under the microscope. There are two very interesting steps. So first, they talked about taking a petri dish and lining it with filter paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, like putting double side tape down, putting the filled paper in, pushing it into the sides and trimming off the excess. And the reason for that is it reduces static electricity between the plastic and your fossil. <laughs> Important stuff that I would not have yep. thought about. <laughs> that I didn't even think about. Uh, and as, as soon as they said it, I remembered because I would see the little flakes of you know, carbonized wood in our Petri dishes when we pick mm-hmm. get affected by static electricity. Yeah, yeah. It was never stuff I was going for, but I would see it move around. You know, be pushed around by the metal tweezers I was using. When your things are smaller than that, you really have to worry about it. The most interesting thing for me is what they use to remove the fossil is this called a widget. Okay. Which I don't know if that's a common term for this tool, but basically <laughs> it's a 
thin rubber band, you know, like just those little stringy rubber bands you get. Mm-hmm. You cut a very short section and glue it to the end of a little handle tool. Then set up your microscope, get your fossils under it, and then you have another Petri dish with water in it. And you dip the end of the rubber band in the water. And when you see a fossil you want, you stick the now damp tip to the fossil and it will stick there because of the little bit of moisture. Because cohesion at and, and adhesion at that level will pick is it up. Perfect amount. And then you dunk the tip in the water and it will let loose the fossil and it'll sink down to the bottom of the water mm-hmm. and your tip's wet again to pick up another one. Your your widget is ready to go to get another one, and that's how you remove fossils. And then you will just have to dry those fossils out and put them into a a vial to contain them. Fascinating. It's a completely whole different procedure for none of the tools are even the same for the most part. Wow. And it's really interesting. You really have to look at things differently when you're getting down to that size. Very cool. Yeah. I know that there's also chemical procedures that they that they'll use for mm-hmm. extracting these where you and they, they, you, we do this with macro fossils sometimes too mm-hmm. where you get certain chemical solutions that will dissolve some substances but not others absolutely so if you if you're looking for you know forams right foraminifera tend to be carbonaceous calcareous yes. calcareous so you and if so if they're in sediment that is silicious right they're in sandy sediment or something mm-hmm. you can get an acid of some kind that will dissolve away the sand without affecting the microfossils material that you're trying to get and so then you're you're separating it out and that, and that's one of the cool things with micropaleontology is that like a lot of them will come from corings and stuff where you'd get drill a yeah. core down and then extract either through chemical processes or just by washing it away you know, but you will be able to extract what's inside that core and it will give you microfossils throughout it. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's one of the ways you can get them out of rocks and stuff. And it's, it's, it's very cool. Uh, lots of different techniques and there's way more techniques and, and specifics than we can go over because there's such a crazy variety of small things that mm-hmm. are and can be studied and found. So that's each one's going to have its own quirk. Yeah. Speaking of those things, yeah, we wanted to go through and give you kind of a glimpse into what are the weird little alien microbe things <laughs> that are getting studied, and many of them are still here today, that are found by these micropaleontologists and studied. Most, Some of them are going to feel very similar because, like we said, a lot of them are single-celled weird things that... Are, each one is just as bizarre as the last one, so they almost seem similar. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, and they're <laughs> but, things that we're not often familiar with in our regular day. Like nanoplankton, you, you know, we're not. Because you can't see them. Well, and, and it's also, like you said in the beginning, normally when we talk about paleo specialties, mm-hmm. it's a lot of the times it's type of organism. Exactly. Right? Dinosaurs or something. But in this case, in the same way that when we talk about plankton, there's this, I, I, people often, I think there's an, a tendency to think, like in SpongeBob, yes. of plankton as a specific organism. Exactly, that there are, there's the plankton animal. Yes, but plankton is 
anything that floats in the water column. Mm-hmm. Nanoplankton is anything tiny that floats in the water column. So that's from all over the 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 animal kingdom and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. That's you know you'll hear the term zooplankton, which are going to be the mm-hmm. the animal like or animal you know, actual animal plankton. Yeah, and a lot of those that people don't realize are babies of animals that you will recognize when they grow up. Yes, you know most fish have larval states, mm-hmm. which is doesn't get talked about. But most fish have <laughs> larval states, and a lot of those make up that plankton. Uh, crab babies and sea yeah. star babies are all part of that. Plankton, planktonic soup. Yeah, so micropaleontology is not studying a specific group of small things. It's anything that's that size. Yep, which is, there's a wide variety. We will not be hitting all of it uh, as usual, but <laughs> yeah. we will be hitting the six specialties that the society focuses on and giving you a kind of a glimpse into what exactly those are and what kind of the variety of things that can be found because yes. you, it's not just tiny organisms. Sometimes it's tiny body parts. There are plants. There are. Mm-hmm. There's even a whole group that's specialized for hard to discern things. So yes. it's <laughs> you get weird stuff. And as I said, one of the un- interesting things about a lot of these is many of them, if not most of them, still persist to today. Yeah. And so they're just as you know, diverse and common for a lot of, for a lot of them, it's just, they've been around for a long time. So we also have a ton of fossils. Mm -hmm. The most common thing that you'll see when you look up micropaleontology and when you'll hear about it are the foraminifera. Yes. These are, these are very much what you will typically hear about and they are very interesting. So they are, as they're described, amoeboid protists. Yes. So they're, they're little single celled organisms very much amoeba-like in the fact that they are going out and feeding, but they're not that slushy blob that you typically think of when you picture an amoeba in your head, that just that wiggly outline with... Like, <laughs> like the amoeba voice? And... Yeah, yeah, like the amoeba voice. <laughs> you know, that's what, you know, that's what you, whenever you hear amoeba, they always draw this, this little lumpy, you know, bag <laughs> mm-hmm, of a cell, yep. and it goes and eats things by wrapping around them. These had a hard shell called a test mm-hmm. that, and this is the part, this, this sounds like something that you would see in a sci-fi movie. They had holes in the test where their feeding filaments would come out of to grab stuff and do things, and or they do have Ooh. this still. Yeah, yeah. So they're like an amoeba with armor. It's really, really bizarre. Yeah. And those tests are what fossilize. Yes. And there's a huge amount of variety in them. Foraminifera are ubiquitous in geological studies. Absolutely. They are... It's one of those interesting forms of life that I remember when I went through... You know, because I have... I I went through two degrees in geoscience. Mm -hmm. And the whole time this word just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And for a yep. long time, I had no idea what it meant. Absolutely. Because <laughs> if you would be like, yeah, and then the foraminifera. And I'm like, all right, tiny shell things. Mm-hmm. Sure. But they're, they're hugely important. And we'll talk, you know, we'll talk more about what Absolutely. they tell us uh, later on. But yeah, yeah, they are mentioned. They're mentioned so often that they, they have a nickname. Mm-hmm. We call them forams. Yep. Yep. 
And they, they, so they're very interesting. They, they first show up in the Cambrian. So they've been around most of the notable fossil record. You know, as we talked about the Cambrian explosion, that's when mm-hmm. all of our really notable fossils show up. And they've been around since then. And one of the cool things about them is their tests vary in what material they're made out of. Yeah. Which can be very informative for the environment, the, you know, that helps us group them in and and classify them. Calcium and chitin are very common. There mm-hmm. was one genus that even has silica, which we'll talk about more with the silico fossils, but that means it was using sand, basically, you know, the, the same material yeah, as, yeah. as sand particles to make their test, which is is getting into weird stuff. You know, we're getting inorganic <laughs> fossils from creatures. <laughs> like it's, yeah. It's, you're, it gets very sci-fi when you get down to these sizes. <laughs> Something a little more recognizable would be the microvertebrates. Yep. These are, uh, and David mentioned, you can get small body parts from lots of animals, but typically what these will be referring to are conodonts. Mm-hmm. Ancient race, Cambrian all the way up to the Triassic, of these eel-like agnathids, which are the jawless fish. So today the lampreys and the hagfish are the remaining yes. groups. And these looked, from the fossils we have, very similar. They're long-bodied, very eel-like, big open mouth. But they had these very tiny, and when you look at them, really, really terrifying-looking yeah. teeth. Like just these big comb-like, spiked, you know, trident teeth. It's very <laughs> weird. But those were able to mineralize. You know, the soft, the the rest of the animal does not mineralize as often, but those teeth do. Mm-hmm. And due to the size of the animal, the teeth are very, very small. Yeah. And can be found very regularly in the fossil record through those times. Another super famous microfossil mm-hmm. group, the conodonts. In fact, it's when you go through earth history like if you take a class or read a book and it goes through mm-hmm. earth history the extinction of the conodonts is a big deal yes because it changes how we understand the rock record and that's that's something and you know we'll probably allude to it multiple times but these animals are incredibly important important for mapping out the fossil record because of how prominent they are because mm-hmm. of how long most of them last, mm-hmm. and the fact that you can really track their features, you know, yeah. a lot of these you can very definite tell. If you find this, you know which layer you're looking at. And we'll look at that in more detail. But a lot of these fossils share a lot of important uses. Yes, you know, each group is very different in what they are, but their importance to paleontology often overlaps, mm-hmm. which is cool. It gives you a lot of different avenues to confirm things, which is always good. So these are probably my favorite, uh, or I like these just because they're they're very interesting uh, among microfossils. The silico fossils probably intrigue me the most, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Ostracods. Yeah. These, also known as seed shrimp, mm-hmm. are one of the few actual animals that you'll find. Yeah, like the full body. The entire thing. Mm-hmm. You know, not the leftover piece. The actual animal is small enough to be part of micropaleontology, and they are very small crustaceans mm-hmm. with a really weird anatomy. So they have a very flattened body. You know, think of like a flea, very narrow, with 
two shells hinged at the top that cover the animal so they look like little beads, little seeds. Cool. And they are, you can find them in freshwater and saltwater. Once again, still around today, one of the most famous ones is Gigantocrypus. I think that's how it would be. Gigantocrypus, which is on um, Blue Planet. It's they show it. It looks like a little red bead. It's got two giant eyes, and it just sits there and flails its little arms and spins in circles. <laughs> it's like the largest living ostracod that's still alive today. Cool. And it's it's a predatory specimen, which is cool. So it's they're still very common today, but they are very interesting for the fact that you're finding the whole animal, and they actually are really important for modern day stuff because you can. Look at very recent records with them. Interesting. You, know, you can you can go back just in our recent human history and look at the fossil record for these because you know if they're in a lake bed, you can go back through. There's a specific example. We'll talk about that and how it was used for conservation. But these are really important for things like that. Cool. I remember uh, Jim Mead would mention ostracods a bunch when he talked about his ice age studies. Yes. Yes. Because even if you're a paleontologist studying you know, bison or Mm -hmm. whatever Jim was studying. And that when he talked to me about these things, you're relying upon information gleaned about the geology and the environment Mm -hmm. from these microorganisms, these little, these little critters. Now these have been around for quite a while. They show up in the uh, Ordovician uh, right after the Cambrian. And they're, like I said, still around today. One fun fact I found while researching them is that ostracods represent the oldest record a fossilized sperm. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Go ostracods. So, yeah. They stay in strong. So they, <laughs> there's, there's one specimen. That's quite a record to hold. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, and it, the, it gets even better because it was a specimen, male ostracod, of course, mm-hmm. found that still had preserved sperm and it was fossilized in guano, bat guano, huh. that it had been most likely living in. Interesting. And that's super. I love everything about this story. There's not a part <laughs> of it that's not not interesting or hilarious. <laughs> that's fantastic, man. Just a whole uh, smorgasbord of body fluids. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's all hilarious and gross. I awesome. love them. <laughs> so, this group is definitely, like I said, the next the next category is the most intriguing to me, just because. This is anyone who's a big sci-fi fan. You know that one of the holy grails of sci-fi authors mm-hmm. is silica-based life forms. <laughs> because silica acts in similar ways. They bond in similar ways that carbon does. Mm-hmm. And so scientists have proposed that if there were a non-carbon-based organism in the universe, silica is the next most likely on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. And the fun thing about that is it means you can make an organism that you can do whatever you want. You can have it eat metal because it's not yeah, carbon-based, so it doesn't have to function under your same biological rules. What were you going to say? I was going to say silicon is mm-hmm. the element. Yes. And silica, just for clarification, silica yes, yes. is SiO2, silicon dioxide, which is quartz, right? Quartz and sand Absolutely. are made out of silica. And so silicon-based life forms, uh, and that's that's uh, you'll you find it all over the place. You know, it's 
the Lost in Space movie. That there's tons of things that have these concepts in it. This is not that. I don't want to <laughs> start this by saying we found it, <laughs> but that is why it is so intriguing to me because there are organisms who have included silica into their biology mm-hmm. to form, you know, much like we have calcium-based, you know, structures, you know, calcium carbonate uh, with, um, you know, reefs and a lot of other marine organisms yeah, like corals, that. Corals, sponges, things like All that. All those. These are silica-based, and they there's a huge variety of these small organisms that either have skeletons, you know, cell walls made up of silica mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of different things like that. So they're building, right, the way that coral works is it's tiny yes. organisms that build calcareous structures around them. Yep, layer upon layer. And a lot of the foraminifera, they're they're building their shells. Same way that, you know, clams do. They they're, they build it's their shells exactly. out of calcium carbonate. These are organisms that build their shells out of silica. Which is, just, it's, it's just fascinating to me because... Like a little quartz <laughs> shell. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like this is, this is made out of a material that you're not... You know, there's, it's, there's no reason this is any weirder than, you know, using the yeah. the calcium carbonate. That eventually forms limestone and stuff. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's still very much not what you would expect to have in your body. But this is just so un, unknown, usually. A lot of these are going to be, um, you know, single-celled little protists and algaes and planktons and mm-hmm. things like that. Diatoms yeah. a really big part on this list. Anyone who, you know, works in the marine biology or oceanography knows about these because they're probably the most common form of phytoplankton yeah, that very just common. floating out there in the ocean. I, I learned about diatoms from the Magic School Bus way back in the day. Yes! That's what yes. it makes me think of. It's the Magic School Absolutely. Bus. Absolutely. <laughs> and so they have a, a, a silica cell wall. Something I didn't realize until I was learning about them is they're not as old as I would have assumed they are. They showed up in the Jurassic Yes, I learned that recently when going through my <laughs> Twitter timescale. Yeah, exactly. Like, thought that they were, they because most of these are, you're going to see Cambrian or Division. Cambrian or Division yeah, yeah. is when most of these things are showing up, but this one's fairly recent, which is cool. Another group's called the Radiolarians. Mm-hmm. Once again, s- similar thing, uh, very complex silica skeletons. This one actually does something where it has a central core of silica that separates the endoplast from the ectoplast. The, uh, Interesting. Yeah, which is really weird. They're still around today. They showed up in the Cambrian, so weird little creatures going around. It's super fascinating to consider that what we're talking about is cell skeletons. Yes. That this is like, it's like a cell exosuit. Yes, exactly. It's And when you look at the pictures, they're they're very uh, robotic looking. They, they're Many of them are made yeah. out of silica tubes that yeah. form these lattice works around. They're not like a little spheroid ball they're mm-hmm. usually made up of bars that form like a cage around the cell yeah which is cooler to me that's that's even better <laughs> yeah. they're very crystalline in a lot of cases yes they are they because really that's are. what it is right they're building it out of minerals mm-hmm. and at that scale it, a lot of times it ends up being these sort of cool crystal lattice works absolutely the list goes on and on for these the uh, iridians fall into this category the uh, silicoflagellates, mm-hmm. which, once again, these are planktonic things, and they are named that because they have flagellum, yeah. little wavy bits that let them swim around. Like those sperm. Yes. <laughs> 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 the uh, 
these all are for the most part are going to be your if, you know making up your different planktons some of them are algae you know this silicoflagellates are planktonic algae while the others were protists but uh or or your more zooplanktons and everything but mm-hmm. a lot of these little guys with silica structures uh, you also get into silica structures but with other groups sponges yeah have sp- spicules they form that act as a structure and deterrent to predators they're little spiky columns that help hold the body shape oh cool yeah they look like little dumbbells like with huh. spikes around where the weights would be oh, uh, terrifying. So it's just like this little bar spiked ends it's and those end up fossilizing uh and can be found in multiple varieties for the different species you get phytoliths yes which are these and these are are notable today because what a lot of people don't realize is lots of plants today have silica inside them. Yeah. Much like the sponge to deter predation. Because yeah. if you were to go outside and chew grass, it would destroy your teeth very quickly because our teeth are not designed to eat sandpaper. <laughs> well, that's why horses have those crazy horse teeth for exactly. grinding against silica. And you can find fossilized versions of this silica that line the inside of uh certain plant cells and uh, uh, structures that will fossilize after the plant itself has decayed. Yeah, phytoliths are exciting because it's another one that comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the rare examples on our list that is a terrestrial microfossil. Yes. That almost everything we've talked about so far is oceanic. Mm-hmm. And you know, realistically, almost everything in the fossil record is oceanic because... Yeah oceans but and most things today are yes oceanic. exactly yeah, we, we tend to forget this <laughs> <laughs> but yeah phytoliths you know cell wall skeletons uh, mm-hmm. come up a lot in terrestrial studies absolutely and so that's it's these are lots of cool things uh a lot of these end up making something i learned about called the salacious ooze yes <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic salacious ooze salacious Different like from salacious ooze. I like salacious. Salacious ooze. <laughs> salacious ooze would be something different. I like it. I like that better. Uh, <laughs> the, sal- the salacious ooze. <laughs> you keep talking. I'm just going to laugh. As I say, I broke David. I have my own little uh, linguistic laugh party over here. <laughs> this is a, a type of sediment that covers small areas of the ocean floor, and it's made out of silica left over from a lot of these creatures, diatoms and radiolarians. Mm-hmm. And it's also, in, it's often indicated because it typically accumulates near areas of, as they said, at high biological productivity associated yes. with volcanic islands. Oh, cool. Which is cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, like, like algal blooms. Exactly. When you have and high so productivity. You get these coverings of sediment made out of the silica remains of these little creatures, these little uh, microbes. Yeah. The last grouping, which is very different in a lot of ways. You know, there's some similarities, but paleontology, which as the name very easily suggests, is often studying things like pollen. Mm -hmm. This is studying, (laughs) as uh, a lot of the definitions call it, it's fossil dust. (laughs) Interesting. These are... Extremely small things. Start. This is the study of organic walled palanomorphs. Yes. And that's just, once again, 
the study of very small things that would typically get confused with dust if you were just glancing at it. <laughs> and I guess organic walled is to say carbonaceous structures. Exactly. Yeah. So now we're looking at or organic structures. You get a lot of things like uh, pollen, spores, mm -hmm. all of those fall into this category. Those are very common. You know, we use them at our fossil site for identifying plants. You can also use this for dating and everything, uh, for dating a site more accurately. And spores, uh, we should clarify, are spores both fungal and plant. Yes. Things like ferns that, that mm -hmm. reproduce by spores, whereas There are is... still sporing plants, and mm -hmm. there were many more beforehand. Yep. You also get some weird things, uh, the dinoflagellate cysts. Yeah. So dinoflagellates are these microbes with, once again, flagellum, mm -hmm. and they make up most of marine plankton. Like, this is this is a, a big part of that, that common planktonic soup. Yeah. Once again, surprisingly fairly recent. They showed up in the Triassic. Of course, they're still around today. Interesting. Yeah. The, the cysts are the dormant zygotic stage of the dinoflagellate. Yep. And so... <laughs> <laughs> well, cysts, bacteria makes cysts too, I mm -hmm. believe, where it's, they, they go dormant Exactly. And wait for certain environmental conditions to be met. These are still protists. Mm -hmm. A lot of these single-celled creatures can revert to a basically earlier developmental stage and go dormant to yeah. then almost be reborn when it gets better. <laughs> it's, like I said, we're getting very alien when you get this size. Like, <laughs> this, is, this is what Cell did when he went back in time. Uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> he went dormant, and he had to He's, he had to regrow from I'm his gonna juvenile stage I'm going to turn into a larva, and I'm going to bury in the ground, and then I'm going to go beat up some Saiyans. So the cyst becomes an imperfect dinoflagellate, yes. and then eats a bunch then of robots. Consume its other dinoflagellate uh, siblings. Yes, makes sense and to then, me. Yeah, and then we—I mean—it gets the one of the best culminations of an arc in the show. Whoa, now. <laughs> Controversial, <laughs> controversial statements being made I, here. I'm sorry. I will always be a fan of when Gohan finally steps up. That was my, <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> that was my favorite moment in the show. It always will be. Cell got a cool theme song too, right? The last group, and this is one of my favorites, just because of this description, are mm -hmm. acrotarchs. Yes, and these are fossils. They show up. Between somewhere between you know the, the the range once you get this far back it gets big but they were present from approximately three to one billion years ago. Yep. To the present, we yep. still have things that fall <laughs> into this. And these are, as the definition says, any small non-acid soluble <laughs> organic structure that cannot otherwise be accounted for in its classified, <laughs> and therefore is classified as an acrotarch. We call those waste bucket groups or waste basket, <laughs> which is basically we have a bunch of stuff we can identify within this. Everything else goes into this definition. Yep. My favorite statement on all the things I was reading about it is one that said they were most likely eukaryotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, especially when you go back to the Archean mm -hmm. and the and the Proterozoic, like you're yes. way way back when single celled life was life. And yes. That was all you had. And so these are fossils that, as you can see from how long they've been around, 
common, long-lasting, mm-hmm. but so bizarre that we we still really don't know them that well. Like we're we're yeah. We, they, these are very very unusual life forms. Yes. So those are our six groups that the society focuses on. There are other neat microfossils. I'm not going to go into them as much detail. Just wanted to give some of the other variety because some of these are really cool. Mm-hmm. Some are straightforward. Lots of little shells. You know, yeah. mollusks. You know, uh, bivalves and snails and all of those things. Tiny shells show up. Um, cryonoids, which many people will probably be familiar with. They're still around today. These are echinoderms. Sea lilies. lilies. And uh, usually you're not finding the full thing. You're finding fragments. Pieces of a cryonoid will fall into the micropaleontology. Bryozoa, which are other little filter feeding Mm -hmm. animals. Very small, typically half a millimeter. And they're colonial, but they're described by individual structures so yeah even though the colony would be big enough to see to study them you have to go down to the micro scale yeah which is cool you get was it this this one's one where it's like just a couple of letters off from being a pokemon the tentaculites (laughs) (laughs) a a pokemon or something that xenomorphs hang out with right and these are uh little conical like fossil shells, like this little cones that were from, and this is one of the weird, they're extinct. They're from the Ordovician mm-hmm. to the Devonian, and we're not sure what they are. Like, cool. Those are the best <laughs> things. They showed up, disappeared, and then that we don't know. That's a, a weird thing about these kind of creatures is that a lot of these, as we're talking about, these are shells or skeletons. Yes. So mm-hmm. we don't get the creature. Mm-hmm. We get the thing it built around its body. So we don't necessarily know what it looked like a lot of the time. Much like when we talked about the cephalopods, mm-hmm. it's one of those where we know the variety was huge, but if you start asking about, okay, but what, you know, how complex were their tentacles, which is, or their, you know, their, did they have tentacles? How, you know, what were their arms like? Yeah. Which is the biggest feature on them that they interact with. And we can't tell you most of the time. Yeah. We do find bacterium. You know, you will find, uh, as you said earlier, cyanobacteria and things like that. Uh, there's one group that I've found while researching this that's, uh, as it claimed, the smallest known, but it's definitely one of the smallest fo- types of fossils uh, discovered, are from magnetoattic bacteria, Ooh. which are bacteria who form crystals of magnetite in their body, in their cells, and will then align with the Earth's magnetic field. Cool. Because why not? Yeah, why, why not? Why, not? <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you? But my favorite, my favorite of all of, like this is definitely my favorite on the list, are skeletodonts. Mm-hmm. Which are the terms for the jaws of polychaete worms. Yep. These are the same group that include the bobbit worm. Sure do. And today, they're still around today. You get a whole bunch of different kind of polychaetes. Some of them are herbivorous. The bobbit is a avid predator that takes down fish. Mm-hmm. But they all shared these very complex, really gnarly looking, like jackknife mouth parts. Yeah. They worm itself typically does not fossilize because it's a annelid worm, just like an earthworm, mm-hmm. soft-bodied. 
but the mouth parts do, and they are one of the very, very common microfossils that you'll come across. Yeah. Uh, that was actually one of the things that the instructions for how to, uh, you know, to uh, clean them and go through them warned about is that those will often float because they're body part that's very light, so it will, you have to make sure it doesn't float on the surface of the water and wash out when you're cleaning them. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so lots of variety. We could do the entire thing just mentioning other weird little things that get found. Yep. <laughs> There's a crazy amount, but oh, yeah. that gives you a good idea of the, the scope. Yeah. One other thing that I would add in is, mm-hmm. as a tiny note, that you can get... Most of what we talked about were, you know, eukaryotes, protists, and, yes. and fungal cyanobacteria we mentioned a little bit. When you go back super, super far in yeah. the geologic record, right? There, there comes a point where microfossils are all you have. Yes. And you can find evidence of cyanobacteria and other sort of, you know, single-celled organisms. Sometimes you will get them as mineralized cells, mm-hmm. where it's not something that they built, but in the same way that a bone gets replaced by mineral, you can get mineralized cells. Yes. Uh, some bacteria have mineralized sheaths, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. other times you're finding evidence like burrows in mm-hmm. rocks or shells. Those can be part of studying these microorganisms. Uh, sometimes they leave chemical remains like the magnetic uh, mm-hmm. things you mentioned, yeah. or, or pigments sometimes, like the breakdown elements of pigments. And then, and this goes into a different discussion, but microorganisms can also leave chemical traces in terms of shifts to isotope ratios and this is a lot of like really really early life evidence is we found this rock that has weird isotope arrangements in it that yeah, might yeah, be yeah. the result of life and so it it gets the the, the and that's that's a different episode but yes. <laughs> the the kind of micropaleontological forensic work you have to do to identify and find really ancient microbes gets absolutely that also leads us nicely into one of the most important things of this field of study is how much microfossils tell us about the geological and fossil record and yes really just history of the planet. It, there's so many things that can be learned from these teeny tiny fossils. I, I think that we, we should start by saying that mm-hmm. in episode 12, we talked about mm-hmm. the geologic time scale and how yes. we determine the events in history and right extinctions and climate mm-hmm. shifts and environmental changes. Almost all of that comes from microfossil studies. Absolutely. Biostratigraphy is one of the biggest uses, and basically all microfossils have been and can be used to aid in and support biostratigraphical dates mm-hmm. and positions because, once again, they you can find them in almost every environment, freshwater, saltwater, terrestrial... Yeah. They have been there basically the whole time. So regardless of where you're digging and what age you're at, you know, as long as the preservation status is is enough to have them, there's mm-hmm. gonna be have been microfossils in that environment. 
Yeah, when, when you learn about index fossils, mm-hmm. you learn, and a good index fossil is a, fo- is, a, is a type of organism that's widespread, yes. fossilizes easily, and changes quickly in geologic time. And, and we point at things like trilobites, and we say trilobites mm-hmm. were everywhere, and they change, right? If you go two million years into the, the, the future, different trilobites from the last mm-hmm. layer, and they're all over the place. Trilobites pale in comparison to organisms like foraminifera, Mm -hmm. which number in the, like, just there's trillions of them throughout different ecosystems and around the world. They're super tiny and they're, they're common enough. And you, you mentioned this, you kind of hinted at this limestone is a rock that is made up predominantly of the remains of the shells of microscopic calcareous organisms. Yes. Like, sandstone is stone that's made of sand, mostly. Mm-hmm. Like, you can imagine beach sand mm-hmm. coming together, you know, being cemented into limestone. Or in yes. the case of something like siltstone, it might be clay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Limestone is like the mud at the bottom of the ocean. The lime mud mm-hmm. is made of just a never-ending rainfall of leftover shells from forams and stuff. Yeah. That makes a calcareous ooze, not a salacious ooze, a calcareous ooze <laughs> that will cement into limestone. The, one of the most Absolutely. common sedimentary rocks in the world is derived from these creatures the reason we have a florida uh, (laughs) (laughs) yes you're built built upon a vast throne of planktonic microorganisms it's it's intense these are these are the builders of ecosystems that we just don't notice because they're they're too small to see and so common you don't think about it you know it's it's very much like fungi in a forest without them you would not have an ecosystem. They would, you know, things would crumble. You'll never think about an, that accidental swallow of ocean water the same way again. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. It's completely changed. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of these things, you can also get into a lot of uh, paleoecology, you know, depending mm-hmm. on what kind of microfossils you found may tell you, are you looking at a coastal, a deep, you know, what what part of the ocean were you in? They'll tell you a lot about what environment you're looking at. Mm-hmm. The chemical composition of the shells can tell you a lot about the environment at the time and the the situ- You know what what those animals, what chemicals were they using to make their shells out of? Tells you what chemicals were available. Yep. Climatology as the climate changes and adjusts, it's going to affect all these little creatures. Absolutely. And we can track it with that. That was actually one of the big things. Uh, conservation can mm-hmm. also be affected by this when i was talking about the ostracods there was a study recently where they went to a it was a lake in africa and they were trying to determine how much biodiversity was affected at that lake specifically but in general how much can biodiversity be affected in one area by human activity in a nearby watershed Mm -hmm. you know in a not the direct area and they were specifically looking at deforestation, you know, what effects yeah. that had. But to do so, they drilled down into cores in one of the 
you know, oldest lakes in Africa, you know, that would have a good history in it. And we're looking at ostracod fossils throughout human history. Like, yeah. very recent, you know, dealing within just the thousands of years to see how the typical changes in biodiversity were and then when human deforestation started, how it affected things to see the the extreme shift between those two times. And so, I mean, you can use, because they're still around today, mm-hmm. you can you can literally take this fossil record all the way up to now. Yeah. And that's something that we don't usually get to do. You know, you, yeah. you can't do that with as many other animals because even even for animals that are still around today, you're, you're not going to have it to where they are that common and just yeah. literally in the mud. And the fact that these are oftentimes the base of their ecosystem mm-hmm. and the fact that they're so small and that they they they're so attuned to their environment right these are yep. extremely vulnerable to change right whether yes. it's pollen on the on, on land or it's plankton in the ocean studying shifts in the diversity and the the arrangement of these organisms tells you about all sorts of environmental shifts right Shallow Absolutely. ocean to deep ocean, as you said. You mentioned climatology. That's a huge one that mm-hmm. we are, right? Our understanding of climate in the past, a lot of that comes from not only how these organisms moved, right? Because you can have mm-hmm. tropical species appearing in higher latitude yes, environments as climate changes, but also the chemical composition, mm-hmm. right? They're building their shells, out of material available in the ocean mm-hmm. and the material available in the ocean is going to be affected by things like the temperature of the ocean. Yeah. Right. Oxygen occurs in different ratios in different ocean temperatures. Absolutely. And if you're building calcium carbonate shells, the oxygen mm-hmm. in that calcium carbonate is going to reflect those ratios, mm-hmm. which can tell you about temperatures and like you said before, you made a wonderful comment that there's so many of these organisms and there's such a diversity of them that it allows us to do a lot of checking and yes. corroborating and double checking throughout the geologic column. Yeah, if I'm doing a test on an area that was a shoreline, I might be able to use foraminifera, ostracod, and pollen. You know, yeah. Because it might be stuff blowing, you know, you can get multiple things all and then do the Venn diagram and mm-hmm. see where they all cross over. It It's also a great, I, I always liked talking about the pollen at the gray site mm-hmm. because the pollen there always served as this wonderful, unexpected proxy for the fossils we don't have. Yes. Because people would say, what was the environment? And you'd say, oh, it was pine. What was it? Pine, oak, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I forget what the other one, but like we would say, oh, yeah, no, pine forest. How mm-hmm. do you know that? Do you find like pine needles? No, we have tons of pollen and the pollen tells yeah. you what the tree, like that you can tell the structure of a forest just Absolutely. by looking at the pollen that's left over. It's, it's literally, you're taking things under a microscope and it is showing you the, the bigger world around it. Yeah. Which is, is that, I don't know, that, that's so cool to me. So one one of the last things I wanted to to touch on because there's actually this is one of the few times where a aspect of paleontology 
branches very heavily outside of the purely scientific mm-hmm. and even you know conservation, but which is still a, a, a scientific endeavor, a, a environmental endeavor. Business, specifically drilling companies, yep. use these fossils extremely heavily because uh, what some people may not realize is when you they set up a drilling rig, the drill doesn't just go straight down. Like that's mm-hmm. not how drills work nowadays. Is they can actually turn them. They have you know joints in the drill and they can steer them. They can move them through. And a lot of times what they'll do is they will go down and then go horizontally and move through a layer while they look they will look for a potentially you know fuel rich layer of rock. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, the right type of rock to have fossil fuels and then follow that layer along until they find something. Yeah. Using these fossils is how they steer in those layers. That's super cool. Yep. By taking samples, they make sure that they're in the right age of rock to stay in the right stratigraphy. Uh, And it's called biostratigraphical steering. That's awesome. Or biosteering. That's uh, even better. Really like, right? <laughs> Biosteering. It's really cool. And they they use the different species. They talk about uh, one article that was proposing all the different uses talks about the fact that benthic species, bottom dwelling species, are great for reconstructing the depositional environment there since they are restricted to very specific habitats. Interesting. Because they are on the bottom, but then the planktonic free-floating species are really great for age dating because of high, how high their evolutionary rates are. You know? Cool. And so a lot of that cool stuff. There's tons of cool things with these. That one was just, you know, regardless of how you feel on drilling, <laughs> it's still interesting that this branch of paleontology is really... When you look up, you know, things like Formanifera, guaranteed within the first few results, you will see something about drilling companies. Oh, yeah. Because that is one of their heavy uses. Well, this is one of those, you know, we talk paleontology is this sort of intersection between biology and geology. Yes. And, and I think we kind of have a tendency, especially in the public eye, the fa- the popular stuff, to mm-hmm. imagine, you know, paleontologists studies dinosaurs and they learn about life mm-hmm. through biology and then they're getting like the environment and age from the geology stuff. Yes. But when you get down to the micropaleo level, this is foundational to geology. Like you do mm-hmm. not have geology without an intense understanding of life through time. Absolutely. That these microfossils are not only ubiquitous in your sedimentary layers, they're not only extremely informative a lot of the times, that's what your sedimentary layer is made of, mm-hmm. is these organisms. They Absolutely. shape, like they create layers, like stromatolites. That's what stromatolites are. are exactly, yeah, yeah. Layers of sediment laid down by cyanobacteria. Which is so cool. It's, it's, it really is that these, these are the foundation builders, not only of the science, but of the literal environments, you know? yeah. You know, coral very much has that effect where it's, these are very small organisms that have built entire ecosystems. Yeah. And it's fascinating. And it gets overlooked so often because you know, they aren't your big flashy animals. And mm-hmm. yet without them, we would not know 
most of what we know because we would not be able to date things the way we do. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to yeah. figure out the environment the way we do and all of that stuff. One more use that I wanted to make mm -hmm. sure to mention is, you know, we talked about these tell us about environmental change. These mm -hmm. tell us, you know, they help us to arrange our layers and, and our understanding of geologic time. Another thing, another place where you will see these come up all the time, and, and the, my introduction, and I, in fact, the first, the thing I think about when I hear foraminifera mm -hmm. is that microorganisms like this are a lot of the time how we identify mass extinctions. Right. Absolutely. The signal that you get from microorganisms during mass extinctions is a huge bit of the evidence we use to build our understanding, mm -hmm. right? We, you know, we talk about the KPG extinction and how below the extinction there's dinosaurs and above the extinction there's almost none. Mm -hmm. But one of the most famous changes is that below the layer there's big foraminifera and above the layer there's small foraminifera. And on the layer... On the layer, there is a spike in spores. <laughs> this, this is a common thing. When you have mass extinctions, you tend to see shifts in, especially marine and pollen and stuff, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, microorganisms. And you oftentimes will get a jump in the amount of spores from things like ferns and fungi, which mm -hmm. thrive in environments where either there's a lot of decomposition going on mm -hmm. or there's a lot of niche space opened up like weeds yes so you will get this wonderful signal in, in extinctions of drops in the microorganisms that are suffering and spikes in the microorganisms that are exploiting this yes. circumstance it's really like that's that's what you know when we talked about the uh human evolution, we talked about the fact that it's a very complete fossil record, which makes it very interesting, because mm -hmm. you have such a full picture of the transitional process. Yes. You know, this is that times an <laughs> order of magnitude. It's Oh, yeah. It's, it's so consistent that you can just follow it as a trend. You yeah. can just watch the spikes go up, and the dips, and the changes, and the shifts, and it's just continuous since the times, you know, the, the like you said, these are the first fossils, our mm -hmm. microfossils. So since the time we have evidence for life, there's been microfossils, and it's been telling us about Earth's history ever since. Yeah, I think, I, I guess that's the one other area that they're super important, is that they are our only biological mm -hmm. window into everything before the Ediacaran. <laughs> So yep, yep. the first four billion years of Earth history, microfossils, mm -hmm. micropaleo is what we have. Absolutely. So it's it's a it's a fascinating category. There's so many different little things that fall into this because once again, it's not a group but a classification mm -hmm. of size. And there's many many specialties that can be found within it. But it's it's I was fascinated getting to study it for this one because there's so many different applications and versions of these kinds of fossils. Yes. Big thanks to Amber for suggesting this because yeah. this has been a fascinating learning experience. It's such a cool Absolutely. field. And hey, I know that we have listeners who are scientists mm -hmm. and we have listeners who know scientists. If you're a micropaleo person, tell us cool stuff 
about your field Absolutely. and your work. We would love to hear it, and we'll we'll share it with our listeners because it's such a cool field that we we the two of us really we have scratched the surface, and we we really mm-hmm. don't know a whole lot about uh, yes. the details ourselves. We'd love to hear from you guys, as we always do. You know, please feel free always, just like this was a suggestion episode, send in your own suggestions to you know our email, comment on our Facebook page, our Twitter account, mm-hmm. comment on the on Podbean. Yes, I I leave it on iTunes wherever you want to leave it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> any way you want to get in touch with us. Yeah, we would be happy to hear more suggestions for cool subjects. Indeed. And this is this is about as far as I am going to delve into micropaleontology for this episode. <laughs> for this episode, yeah. <laughs> for this episode. If you request more, we'll do more. Absolutely. So that that is your introduction to the tiny world of paleontology. Dear listeners, remind, remember that we release episodes every fortnight. Yes. So two weeks from now, in in the bleak December, <laughs> we will be back with more. The most, the most wonderful time. Of the the year. It, it was in the bleak December. <laughs> no, no, I said, I said bleak. <laughs> I was very specific. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone, for listening in. Yeah, as usual, if you would like to hear more things, we do extra little recordings on our pod on our uh, Patreon, mm-hmm. and we'd love to to see you as a patron there. Thank you to everyone who already is subscribed and donating yes and once again that never hesitate to get in contact with us and that about wraps things up it does we will see everybody next time almost it almost wraps things up not quite because we're still in november but it almost wraps things up with a nice big bow (laughs) (laughs) sir you guys you guys are going to get to learn something about our dynamic come next month i will maintain my bah humbuggery (laughs) until the week Of Christmas. Thank (laughs) you very much. (laughs) See you guys. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. (laughs) 